Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Romans chapter 6, Paul opens up with a question. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So if it seems like Paul is picking up mid-thought, if he's picking up mid-point, well, that's because he is. There's been a lot of study up to this point to bring us to the discussion that we're about ready to have this morning. Up to this point, we've been talking about justification. Justification is that beautiful thing you guys know by now, I hope you do, That justification means it's just as though you have never sinned. It's where God took and removed our guilt by paying the price for our sin on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he took Jesus' righteousness and he charged it to our account. Justification, just as though we have never sinned. Sinned. When the Lord looks upon you, when the Lord looks upon me, he does not see our, our sin necessarily as Christians. Our, our sins have been dealt with on the cross. He sees in our lives the righteousness that has been imputed to us by Jesus. And so Paul has very masterfully kind of brought us to this place. And again, to understand where Paul is going, we have to know where Paul has been. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to just bring ourselves up to speed. So the first three chapters of Romans, Paul spends time really showing us our need for justification, showing us our need for a Savior, showing us that we were all guilty, that there are none righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, To the perverse heathen, the pagan sinner, to the uh, you know, to the the person who thinks that they're just a good guy, to the the do-gooder, the the moral person, guilty, all guilty. The, The pious Jew, guilty. All are guilty before the Lord. And so he he did a masterful job of showing us our need for justification. But after he showed us our need for justification. He shows us how we can receive justification. He shows us how it works. And we've been through these terms. Uh, redemption. That we sold ourselves to sin and he purchased us back. How? Through propitiation. That he was our substitute on the cross. That we might have his righteousness imputed to us. All of these uh, things. This, this is what Paul explains to us, that justification, that's the way it works, but it comes into your life and in mine, not through works, not through being, being good boys and girls, not by reading your Bible a certain amount of hours or, or, or praying enough or giving enough. Justification comes into our lives by believing, by faith. And Paul used the example of, of Abraham. There in Genesis chapter 12, where it said, Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Simply by believing, that's how we receive justification. That's how it's just as though we've never sinned, is by simply putting our faith and trust in the work of the cross, in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Even as Romans is going to go on to tell us, that that's how we're saved. That we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus died on the cross and that he was buried, and three days later he, was ro- he, he rose again. Uh, that's what, what it means. And so that's how we receive justification. So, so Paul explains to us why we need to be justified. He, he shares with us how we can receive justification. And so now what? Uh, what do we do with that information? We've been justified. It's just as though we've never sinned. What does that mean for us practically? And as we opened up chapter 5 last week, we kind of dove into the practicality of what that meant as Paul really shared the blessings of belief. Paul, Paul, Paul shared with us just practically what does it mean to be uh, justified. And, and he shared with us that we have peace with God. Uh, We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer striving against God. There's a peace there. Not only is there a peace there, but peace paved the way for relationship. We have access to God. That we can go before the Lord anytime we want. We have peace. We have access. We have a hope in the Lord. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward to heaven. 
what he's done for us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. Not only do we hope in heaven, but we can rejoice here currently, even in the midst of trial, knowing that the Lord is at work in our lives. And then on Wednesday night, we saw how we have been saved from God's wrath, that we are not appointed unto God's wrath, that every single drop of wrath that God would have reserved for you was poured out upon Jesus. Every single drop. So there's none left. We've been saved from wrath. And we've been made righteous. And Paul took the time to explain to us that through one man's sin, death entered into the world. That is, through Adam came sin and death and sorrow and sickness. But through the one man Jesus, through his obedience came life. Through Adam's disobedience came death. Through Jesus' obedience came life. What a wonderful reality that is. What a wonderful truth that is. And so Paul now, he's making this point. And as he finishes up chapter 5, I'll just read it to you. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Right? We talked about that, how we've been given the law, the Ten Commandments. Not that we can somehow earn God's favor by keeping them. No, but the law was given to us as a schoolmaster to show us that keeping the law is an impossibility. The law was given to us to show us that we need a Savior. So, so Paul says, uh, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And what a beautiful thing that is. Most of us probably have that highlighted in our Bibles. That, that no matter where you've been or what you've done, no matter the, the magnitude of the sin that you have committed, you cannot outrun God's grace. You cannot outrun God's forgiveness in your life. And so, Paul here, he has really, you know, given us some beautiful truth that we might hang on to. Right? We are saved by grace. We're justified by believing, not by works. All of the sickness and sorrow and even our propensity to sin is a result of Adam's original fall. It's all Adam's fault. <laughs> and where we sin, there is limitless forgiveness. What beautiful truths. But if we leave it there, then we're missing a part of the puzzle. See, where the first five chapters of Romans have dealt with justification, they've dealt with uh, really the, the penalty of sin being dealt with. Uh, starting in chapter 6, we're now going to move from justification to sanctification. That is, that the power of sin has been removed. Justification, the penalty of sin has been removed, but now uh, sanctification, the uh, power of sin has been removed. And so, you know, as, as Paul so masterfully does, as he's unpacking this like a lawyer, he presents his case, but then he anticipates the objections. Right? Any of you guys ever, ever watch any, like, court shows or, or anything like that? I'm ashamed to, to admit that I, I watched the whole Johnny Depp, like, court thing. I was watching some highlights there. Really, Johnny Depp's a funny guy. I mean, it was a dastardly gross situation. But, but one thing that, in this five-minute clip that I watched, that I don't recommend, just so you know, but it serves to make a good point, it is that constantly the, the lawyers are saying, I object, I object, Your Honor, I object, I object, I object. And so now Paul here, he anticipates the objection, Your Honor, I object. Right? If we're saved just by, by grace, by simply believing, if where sin abounds, grace abounds more, well, won't that give people just a license to sin? Won't people just go out and, and live their lives in, in rampant indulgence? Uh, you know, won't it be okay to, to sin? And this is really an honest objection when you kind of evaluate it from a, a horizontal, from an earthly position. You look and say, well, why, why, why wouldn't people just keep on sinning? If all their sin is paid for, if salvation is by grace through faith apart from works, what's stopping people from just saying, well, I, I believe, and then going on and living uh, the way that they want to? What's stopping us from just giving ourselves over to uh, a life of indulgence, to a life of sin, so that grace might abound, right? We could say that. We say, well, let's just keep on sinning, because the more that I sin, the more God's grace shines in my life. 
There was actually a monk in the early 20th century, in like 1913. His name was Gregory Rasputin. Uh, actually, uh, there was uh, an artist, Boney M., wrote a song about him in the 70s. Remember? Ra, ra, Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. It's a really catchy song, actually. But, but it's, it's all about this Russian monk uh, who, who believed and taught this idea that, man, the more we sin, the more we need forgiveness. The more forgiveness we need, the closer we are to the Lord. So we should just sin, and those who sin the most are the closest to the Lord. And so he taught this, and he lived a life of just absolute debauchery, of notorious sin, uh, of drinking and lusting and all the rest. And there's all sorts of politics, uh, as a side note, mixed into that. And he ended up uh, being shot. First, they tried to poison him. They, they gave him cyanide. That didn't even affect him. So they shot him. He still lived. Then they beat the snot out of him. He still lived. So they shot him again. He still didn't die. Then they threw him in the icy river, and he ended up drowning. The wages of sin, folks, is death, <laughs> right? We can see that. But Paul, as he, he kind of anticipates this objection, uh, now he, he brings us to this place to where he kind of answers this question for us. Uh, he says, uh, should we just go on sinning that, that grace might abound? And he says, certainly not. Absolutely not. Maybe your Bible says, God forbid. Uh, it, it literally means, may it never be. It, it is the strongest Greek idiom uh, for, for repudiating a statement. It's the strongest way you can say that is not true. And it comes attached with it. It carries a sense of outrage that anybody would even believe that that would be the case. There's this offense. Paul's like, how dare you even say that? No, that is not the way that it works. And then Paul is going to go on to show us why. Why is it that we don't continue on in sin that grace might abound? And Paul begins his argument, he begins to teach us why that's a dumb idea, by asking us a question. And he says, uh, how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Uh, that's what he goes on to say after he says, uh, right there in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So Paul, he poses this question. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer? He says, don't forget this reality that you and I as Christians are dead to sin. He, he drops this truth bomb on us. And, and he repeatedly says uh, in here like three times, he says, don't you know, uh, uh, know this or knowing. Paul's saying, these are things that I want you to understand. These are things that, as believers, you need to know. And he begins to, to talk about baptism. He says, don't you know that when you were baptized? He says, don't you know this? And, and I get the sense that as Paul is talking to this, uh, this church in Rome, this, this young church, that there are aspects of their faith that they haven't really grabbed a hold of yet. Uh, this idea of baptism. Baptism, boy, in the early church, uh, was, was something that happened uh, at the time of salvation. Uh, you would be saved, you would be surrendered, you would believe by faith, and then immediately you would be baptized uh, that you might give an external uh, kind of show, an external symbol, an external sign of what has taken place in your life internally. And so uh, these people would have been very familiar with baptism. We oftentimes, we wait in our culture uh, for, for various reasons. Uh, but baptism, you have to understand, it, it wasn't a suggestion. It says, believe and be baptized there in Mark 16, 16. Uh, Jesus, when he's sending out the disciples and us, 
He says, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's something that's important that we ought to do. Why? Why should we get baptized? Well, because there's this connection between baptism and the cross. And that's what Paul is getting at. He's going to drop this bit of truth that the early church there in Rome had not gotten a hold of yet. They hadn't made it their own. And I love that. Because here's the truth about our walk with the Lord. It's a walk. It's not a sprint. This walk with the Lord is a journey. And there's things that I didn't understand yesterday that the Lord will give me revelation of today. There's things that I don't know today that the Lord will teach me tomorrow that we are to be growing. And that as we come across these things, these principles, these ideas, these truths in the scripture, that we are to grab a hold of them and apply them to our lives in faith. And that's what Paul is asking the Roman church to do. Saying, do, don't, don't you know that when you were baptized, and you're baptized into the death of Jesus? Don't you understand what took place symbolically, what you're grabbing a hold of by faith? Take this and, and, and apply it to your life. And I pray that's what we would do in this place. That week by week, as we study through the scriptures, as we learn new things, that we would apply them to our lives. Again, that we would be uh, not just hearers of the word, but we would be doers uh, of the word. And so Paul says that you are baptized into his death. Now, when I baptize people, and I love baptizing people, uh, you know, we don't do the sprinkle thing, right? Uh, because when we baptize, it's a picture. When we are baptized, we are being buried with Jesus. Uh, we, we, we are dying with him. There's a, a symbol. We're, we're bringing, and, and so, you know, you don't get sprinkled when you die. You get buried when you die. You know, we have the, the horse trough now which is a sweet addition. We, we broke that baby in a couple weeks ago, and we hope to get some more use out of it today. Uh, but it's new. I'm used to getting in and dunking people and doing this, and so I had to watch some videos like, how do you even do this thing? And I noticed that a lot of people sit upright, and then they dunk forward. And I thought, you know, that's not going to do either, because that, that's not the way we're buried. You're just chucked into the grave. Like, no, no, you're buried. You're laid back. You're buried. And so that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, this thing that you, don't you know that when you were baptized, that you were buried with Christ? And, and why were we buried with Christ? Not so that we could remain dead, right? When I, I, I baptize you guys, I bring you back out of the water. I leave some of you under the water longer than others. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't really. Don't let that scare you. But we're buried so that we might be raised we identify with the death so that we can identify with the resurrection, what Paul calls the newness of life. And so that's what Paul is saying. He says, I want you to know, don't you understand that you are a new man in Jesus? That you are a new woman? That you've been given a newness of life? That there, there's this thing that has happened. There's been a transformation. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You've been born again. In Ezekiel the Lord says that he, he wants to give us his spirit. That he wants to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. In uh, Corinthians, uh, we have been given the newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We are new creatures. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Again, in Ephesians 4, 24. And that you put on the new man, uh, which was created according to God in true righteousness. Uh, we're new creatures in Christ. The Lord is doing something new in your life. There was something that happened in that moment. You gave your life to God. You say, I'm being buried with you. I'm going to identify with your death. And I'm going to identify with your resurrection. The newness of life. Again, that the Lord didn't save you to leave you where you were, but he has a purpose and a plan for you to walk out in your life. You are a new creature. It's not the same. And I remember when I, I first really gave my heart to the Lord, when, when as a young man, I, I, I just was surrendered. Like, honestly, I was just surrendered from the heart. I didn't want anything but what God had for me. I was done playing games. And I remember this transformation that began to take place in my heart. I would love to say that from that point on, I no longer had 
the, the temptation to sin. I never sinned ever again after that. It was great. No, that's not the case. But there was a transformation that happened. Those things that used to satisfy me no longer did. Those things that I took such pleasure in my carnal nature, they just turned to ash in my mouth. Not because I was trying to earn God's favor or because I just loved the Lord and he was doing a work in my life. When you are born again, something happens in your life. You are a new creation. And maybe you say, well, I don't feel like a new creation. I got saved and I just don't feel it. That's why Ephesians tells us to put on the new man. Right? These things that, that like Paul is sharing, like, oh man, that clicked. I get it. I'm a new creature. I don't feel like it. So what do we do? We walk it out in faith. Whenever we come face to face with a truth, we have this truth that we know to be true, but it doesn't line up with the way we feel. We walk in faith. We apply that in faith. In Romans, Paul goes on in Romans 13 to say that the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Again, putting on. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in uh, chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh for the f- uh, to fulfill the lust thereof. See, we're to walk in faith. You're a new, I don't feel like it. Put Jesus on. How? Man, through spending time with him in prayer, in word, in gathering together corporately like we're doing, putting on Jesus. You say, well, that, that's hypocritical because you know what? I'm, I'm putting on Jesus and, and, I, and uh, you know, it's not who I, I really am. In faith, it really is who you are. And I tell you what, we're not to walk according to the old man. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute because that's Paul's next point. But I'll tell you this, the longer you put on Jesus the more it comes naturally. It's all part of this sanctification process. And we've talked about sanctification where sanctification just means that we have been set apart. We're set apart by God for God. And we talked last week when we, we talked about being able to rejoice in our tribulations, that the reason that we can rejoice in our tribulations is because we know that God is doing a work in our lives through our tribulations. And so we say, oh, you know, this work of justification, the Lord is working things into my life that shouldn't be there. We're working things into my life that should be there and working things out of my life that shouldn't be there. But don't make the mistake of thinking that it's all the Lord just working on you. Right? He, he gives us a role to play in this, a choice to make, to put on the new man, to put on Jesus by faith. Remember, that's it's Paul's first thing. He's, do you not know? Know this. Understand this. You are a new creation. You are a new creature in Christ. And that has wonderful ramifications for us. Because we are our new creatures, the old man is dead. And that's what Paul is going uh, to talk about uh, next, uh, starting in verse 6. He says, knowing this, again, no, you got to understand this. Knowing this, that your old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, that the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So not only are we a new creation, the Paul, the Paul's saying that, that we've been made a new man, but he's also saying, know this, something else that you need to know, that, that, you, uh, that the old man is dead. The old man has been destroyed. That old man of sin and death, our, 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 uh, our BC man, and not old man, like the, the old man that's in me. I feel like I've got the old man in me. Like, oh, I don't feel like doing that. I'm tired and, and hungry and cranky and I need a nap. Not that old man. Like the previous man. The person you were before he made you a new person. That old man, those tendencies, those, those, those things, uh, that desire to sin, that no longer rules and reigns in your life. Right? You still have the capacity to sin if you want to, but you are no longer a slave to sin unless you make yourself one. See, that, that, that bondage has been broken, right? Justification is that the penalty of sin has been paid for. Sanctification, 
the power of sin has been broken. Sin does not own you anymore. Why? Because sin is dead. The old man who used to revel in sin, who used to thrive in sin, who was a slave to sin, that old man is now dead. Nailed to the cross. You've been transformed. You've been made a, a, a new person. The old man is dead. The old man no longer has dominion. The old man can do nothing but tempt. See, the, the old man is dead. The old man has been destroyed. We say, man, that's great. He's toast. Uh, you know, the, 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 the old man can't bring temptation into my life anymore. I wish I could say that that's true. I, I wish I could say that the old man is destroyed as in obliterated, doesn't even exist anymore. But the truth of the matter, he does exist. He's dead. He, he's been crucified, but he's not dead yet, is the idea. And that word for destroyed... Uh, where it says that the old man has been destroyed, is cardigeo, which means rendered inactive, inoperative, paralyzed, deprived of force, influence, and power. So, so not totally removed, because, see, we live in this reality, right, where we face temptation, right? If, if the old man was obliterated, boy, there would really even be no temptation. But we are tempted, right? The old man is powerless, but he's got a big mouth. Right? He can still bring temptation into our life. See, the difference now is, is that that temptation has no power over us. We don't have to cave into sin. We don't have to give into sin. It's no longer a requirement for us. We don't have to. There's a, a story in the Old Testament. Uh, it's found in Judges chapter 4. Judges is a cool book. There's a cycle that takes place in Judges. It, kind of the, the overarching theme in Judges is that every man did what was right in his own sight. Every man was just kind of doing his own thing, not obeying God, but really disobeying God. And there's a cycle that Israel would go through because Israel enjoying the promised land was kind of covenantial. It depended on their obedience, the blessing of that land. When they walked in disobedience, the Lord said, I'm going to bring your enemies in to serve as a means of correction, of discipline. And so there, there's this cycle in Judges where Israel would walk in disobedience. God would bring correction via a, a neighboring nation. There would be a deliverer, there would be repentance. There would be a deliverer raised up. They would seemingly go to live happily ever after, and then they would walk in uh, their sin again, and it, over and over again this happens. Well, in Judges chapter 4, King Jabin, he was a Canaanite king. He was a wicked man, and he had a gnarly army. He had 100,000 soldiers, 900 chariots, and, and that, was, that was beefy back in the day. There was nobody messing with Jabin, and the Lord had allowed Jabin to rule over Israel at that time to bring correction. But they were in this process of, of repentance, and so the Lord raised up Deborah to be a deliverer, to be a judge, to, to deliver them from that. And the Lord spoke to Deborah and said that I am going to deliver you from Jabin and I will defeat his army and Sisera. Sisera was the general of the Canaanite army. He said, I'm going to defeat those guys. And so Deborah goes to, goes to Barak, the dude who should be leading the army. He said, Barak, listen, this is what the Lord said. God is going to deliver the Canaanite army into our hands. He, he's going to deliver Sisera. Now go and do what you need to be doing. Go and, and, and fight. And Barak was, he was just a pansy, honestly. And he said, well, I'll go if you go, Deborah. I said, ah, fine, you sissy, let's go. But you have to know this, that the credit for the battle will not go to you as leading the army. It's going to go to a woman. And so they go to battle, and the Bible tells us that God routed the army, all of the chariots and Sisera. Routed means whooped them, put the hurt on them. And all of the army and chariots, they're running in one direction, and Barak goes chasing after them. And then Sisera, the general of the Canaanite army, he flees on foot, and he goes to hide in a, a kind of a neighboring tent. And there in that tent, he met a lady named Jael. And he goes into the tent and he starts laying down his demands and saying the way that's going to be, hey, would, I need some water. Would you please get me some, some water? And she says, well, I don't have any water to give you, but I have a, a jug of milk, <laughs> unpasteurized, fresh, 
whole milk there that in other translations it says butter. Nothing more refreshing after you've run across the desert than a jug of warm buttermilk, right? There's actually an episode of Little House on the Prairie where Pa, he, he chugs down the buttermilk. Like he's, it's one of like the, the shirtless scenes. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but uh, buttermilk sounds disgusting. Yeah, pa thought it was good. I've never tried it. Maybe I'm missing something. You'll have to share with me if buttermilk is good after you work out. I doubt it. Anyways, she gives him buttermilk, warm, warm milk. And he's like, well, you have to cover this whole thing up. You got to cover me. You got to lie. You can't say that I've been here. Uh, you know, just, just go along with, with the old man. Really, Cicera is an embodiment of that old man. He's a picture of the old man. And what does she do? I love it. He, she, she wraps him up. She puts him to bed. And then she takes the, the tent stake and she drives it through one temple out the other and nails him to the ground. Pegged him to the ground. Probably didn't color that one in Sunday school, did you? <laughs> But there she really shows us how to deal with the old man. Right? The old man can make all sorts of suggestions. He can make all sorts of demands. He can throw out all sorts of temptations, just like Sisera did. Hey, bring me some water. Cover this up. You need to lie about this. You need to be on my side. But he has no power over us. JL wasn't fighting for victory. She was fighting from victory. The army had already been routed. It wasn't dependent on her to win the victory. She was walking in the victory, and that's what we get to do. The victory was won on the cross. We don't have to listen to the old man. We can just nail that sucker to the ground. Be like JL. And she nailed it. We can do the same thing. We can say, you know what? I'm not going to cave in to temptation. All the old man can do now is bark. You ever notice that some of the loudest dogs are the most ineffective dogs when it comes to being a guard dog? The most loudest dogs are always seem to be chihuahuas. Just, just get out of here. That's what we can do to the old man. Paul says, reckon yourself dead to the old man. Casey was making some cookies last night. And uh, I've been on this kind of kick where I have been trying to eat better because I got signed up to do the turkey trot. And I went to run and my joints were like, you're too fat. And, and so to try to save my knees and my ankles, I've been trying to drop a few pounds and so I've been eating good. Uh, I also got roped into a push-up challenge, but that's another side story. But I've been, I've been kind of doing good. And so Casey's like, you know, I want to make cookies. There's this hesitation. I was like, what's up? Just make some cookies. She said, well, I don't want to tempt you to sin. And I, wanna, I don't want to tempt you to, to break your, your diet. And I looked right at, right at her and I said, I've reckoned the old man dead. Don't you worry about it. And she made these snickerdoodle cookies. And they were... They were not the big, tall, cakey ones. They were the perfect, like, flatter, chewy, delicious ones. And so I, I would love to tell you that I didn't, but I ate four of those cookies. <laughs> right? You probably thought that story was going in a different direction. But I ate four of those cookies, and I drank a tall glass of cold milk, and it was fantastic. But I'll have you know that I wasn't forced to eat those cookies. You see, I made the choice. I said, all right, I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to. And that's the difference. Right? We are no longer bound to the old man. Our, our life has been changed. We're new creatures in Christ. The old man has been nailed. But the thing is, we still give in. Right? We, we still, and, and I just want to remind you that we can, again, grab a hold of this in faith. And we can remember that, listen, we're not slaves to sin anymore. Sin does not own us. We don't have to obey sin. That we can nail the old man. I want you to take a hold of that. Whatever Cicera you are wrestling with in your life, it has no power over you. I don't care how tempting, how crazy, how big. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. The victory is already won. All we have to do is grab a hold of it and walk in it by faith. And that's what Paul is saying. You got to know this. You are a new creature you got to know this. The old man is nailed and no longer has dominion over you. So now what are you going to do? Right? That's when he says, reckon the old man dead. So now, now we need to come to a, a decision. The reckon, the word reckon, it's an accounting term. It means to add it up. It means to look at the facts, to add it up, to come to the truthful conclusion. And, and now that's what Paul is saying. Add it up. Look, you're a new creature. The old man is dead. The war is won. Jesus died. The old man was nailed to the cross. With him, he rose from the dead, and you are free to now walk in newness of life. So what are we going to do? And that's where we will finish these last few verses this morning. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, 
right? In light of all this, of doing the reckoning, of doing the math. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present or yield. My translation says present, but maybe yours says yield. Yield, I like better. Uh, Same thing, though. Uh, But yield yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? He reiterates this truth. Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Are you picking up what Paul's laying down here? He, he's now saying, do the math. You no longer have to walk in those things. Where you had once yielded your members to sinful things, you don't have to do that anymore. You're not under the law. You're under grace. You can simply walk in the victory that has already been given to you. That when you believed, when you put your faith in Jesus, that doctrine that saves, you're no longer slaves to sin, but now you're slaves to righteousness. Right? You are a slave to whatever it is you obey. If you want to go back and obey sin, well, you can do that, and it leads to death. But that's not what we have to do. And he continues on. If I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your faith, or your fruit to holiness, pardon me, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so now Paul really brings us to that place of decision. And that really is where we are. Since we are new creatures, since the old man has been crucified and no longer has dominion over us because of Jesus, in light of all of that, now what are we going to do? And Paul says, do not let sin reign in your life. What does it mean to reign? It means to rule over. What does it mean to be a slave to something, to be owned by it, that you have no choice but to obey it. Paul says, do not let sin reign in your life. And so who is the king in your life? Are you being ruled by sin? Are you being ruled still by the old man unnecessarily? We can live in bondage again if we want to, but we don't have to. We have that choice. Again, this is the part of of sanctification that, that we get to participate in, right? Not because we have to, but because we get to. Again, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're earning salvation or that you're earning God's favor or love. You have been justified by faith, just as though you have never sinned. That was something that you could not do. The penalty of sin has been dealt with, but now the power of sin has been broken. What are we going to do? What are we going to walk in? Instead, Paul says, yield your body, your members, to righteousness. Don't walk in the way that you used to. Remember when you used to walk in that? What fruit did you have in the old life, Paul asks? What fruit do you have in those things that you're ashamed of? Right? And that's the way sin is. And the old man, when he tempts, boy, he's so good at painting the old life, the glory days. Glory days. There's even songs written about it, right? They weren't the glory days. We remember the cheap laughs and the counterfeit fellowship. But what we forget are the spinning rooms and the porcelain pillows and the mornings of regret. What fruit we had in the former life. Paul says, why would you want to go back and live in that place? That fruit was rotten. Don't believe that lie. Instead, walk in righteousness. Why walk in righteousness? Because sin stinks. Because sin hurts. Because sin is devastating. And I think that's something that we need to remind ourselves of as the church. That sin... 
that sin hurts us, that sin is destructive, that God isn't some sort of cosmic killjoy just saying, hey, I don't want you to do that just because I said no. Sin is forbidden in our lives because it's bad. Sin is forbidden. He says, don't, don't do that because I know it's going to hurt you. As parents, we know how that works. There's lots of things that our kids wish it was okay for them to do. You know, my kids wish that it, it was okay for them to eat ice cream for breakfast. My kids wish that it was okay for them to jump off the roof with a pillowcase as a parachute. My kids wish it was okay for them to play with my chainsaw when they're just little. But it's not, because as loving parents, we know it. If you stick the key in the light socket, it's going to be bad. So, so you're not allowed to, not because we don't want them to have fun. And, and that's something that we need to recognize, is that sin is fun for what? A season. And then it brings death. And I feel like this, this idea, like we have chapters, you know, one through five, when we've been justified by faith, we, we hold on to that. But in this part of chapter six, where we're called to walk in holiness and righteousness, as a church, we've kind of missed that. In America, especially, because we have churches that are, are not living according to God's word whatsoever, who are flying the rainbow flag, who are doing their own thing, who are shaking their fist in rebellion at God, who are grabbing hold of all sorts of things that are unbiblical. They're walking according to the old man. We have the choice. We ought to walk in this, this righteousness. We ought to walk in accordance to what the Lord has saved us from. He saved us from sin that we might walk in righteousness. But we get into this place to where we're like, well, you know, I'm forgiven. And we kind of get lazy in our faith. And I think it's good for us to remember, man, the Lord is so good. He's so good. He's done so much. I want to serve him and obey him, not only because sin destroys life, but because I love him. And that's what Jesus said. If you love me, you will obey me. See, if you go through life trying to be righteous because you think you have to be, your walk, your Christian experience is going to be an absolute drag. It's going to be a burden. But if you go through your Christian life striving to do righteousness because you love the Lord and that's your motive, see, it all comes down to motivation. Man, it's a joy. It's interesting the way that the Lord brings. Have you ever been in a situation where the Lord just brings these themes into your life from like multiple places? Like we're talking about this, striving for righteousness here this morning as we're going through Romans 6, super important. But on Thursday at men's lunch, we were talking about the same thing as we went through Psalm 101. Where David says, you know, I, I will put no wicked thing before my eyes. I, I will walk wisely. I, I'm going to walk according to the state. Why did David walk that way? Because he had to earn God's favor? No, because he loved the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. And we take that snapshot and say, was the man perfect? Absolutely not. Did he love the Lord? He did. And he, he walked as best as he could because he knew sin was destructive and because he loved the Lord. And, and that's our call this morning. So often we err to the other side. Grace is great. I'm glad for grace. That's the truth. We're saved by grace. But that doesn't mean we just give up and go back and live our old lives of sin. Our old man will tempt us. The enemy will tempt us. And it will take a, it will take a decision on your part to say no. And sometimes in our modern church, you say, well, now you're just doing works. No, you're not. You're walking in righteousness. You're doing what Paul tells you to do. And guess what? We find great blessing in that. When we walk according to, we just find blessing. You know what? Now that I'm out of the party scene, I don't wake up the next morning and say, oh my gosh, what did I do last night? Blessing. I, I mean, there's just so, I could go on and on down that vein. And so Paul says, hey, listen, you guys have a choice. You're new creatures in Christ. The old man is dead. You don't have to obey it. And so now we come to this place of decision this morning. And my prayer for us is that we would decide to walk in righteousness. Not because we have to, because we get to. Again, I keep stressing that because I don't want you to mix it up. But there is two sides of the same coin. The Lord didn't save us to leave us where we were. He desires for you to walk in all that he has for you. And the enemy desires to trip us up through the old man, through temptation. But glory be to God, that old man has no power over us. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood for us. His blood was shed 
And our sin was dealt with once and for all. The blood that was shed dealt with the penalty of sin. The penalty was paid. But his body, as he was beaten, as he was mocked, as he was chained, because of his broken body, the power of sin has been broken. So my prayer for us is that we would go out and we would walk in that reality. Where we say, you know what, Pastor Jeremy, I'd love to, but I still feel tempted. Hey, walk in that according to faith. In one hand, I know the truth. On the other hand, I have this feeling in these circumstances. Walk according to faith. Put on the new man. Put down the old man. Reckon the old man dead. Walk by faith in all that the Lord has for you. And commit your members unto righteousness, not unto wickedness. Amen? Amen. That's good. So now we get to come. We get to take communion. I love just the way we get to to close out service because there's a lot that's going on. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to take communion. But I want to back up to this idea of baptism, right, that we talked about, that Paul says, hey, don't you know? Don't you know that when you were baptized, man, it was symbolic that you were buried with Jesus and then you rose in newness of life? That when you were baptized, the old man was nailed to the cross, and as you come out of the waters, you walk in the power of the resurrection? Don't you know? And maybe you're here this morning and say, actually, I don't know. I mean, I get it intellectually, but I've never walked through it practically. Hey, here's an opportunity for you. If you've never been baptized and you want to get baptized, come up. Pastor Sky is going to be up here. Me and Jessica are going to close out in some worship songs. Man, this is an opportunity for you to walk out practically, to grab a hold of by faith those things that the Lord has called us to and walk them out in your life. And guess what you'll experience? Blessing. It's great. Uh, Because you're baptized, are you never going to face temptation or sin again? No. But you'll be able to grab a hold of it by faith because you're saying, you know what? I'm going to experience this practically. It's no longer going to be an idea for me. It's going to be a reality for me. And so walk in that. That's great. If you're a Christian in this place and you've never been baptized, take advantage of the opportunity that we're making uh, for you today. But maybe you have never even ditched the old man. Maybe all this talk of being born again and regeneration is completely foreign to you. And you say, well, I've not been born again. I've not been regenerated. I haven't had a new heart put in me. I haven't had that heart transplant. I haven't had that spirit of God dwelling inside of me. And I would say, like Paul, man, let's do some reckoning. Uh, Let's do some calculations. Let's look at the facts and let's come up to a a conclusion. What are you waiting for? All the work has been done. All you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus died in your place on the cross, that he was buried and three days later he rose again. That's it. It's that simple. And from that point on, the sanctification starts. The justification, the work has been done. Not working for victory, but from victory. And I would say, let that process begin. Let today, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. So often we can come to this pivotal point in our life, so all right, I'm ready, but I'm scared or I'm not sure, so I'll table this and I'll come back to it tomorrow. The Lord is knocking on your heart today. There's no guarantee that he will knock on the door of your heart tomorrow. That's just the reality. Take advantage of today. Because tomorrow is not even a guarantee. And so as we lead out in worship, Sky can, can make his way on up. And uh, if you want to get baptized or if you want to get saved, man, I want you to walk right up here as we're taking communion. And I just want you to be obvious about it. Just come and stand and Sky will pray with you and he'll baptize you. And it'll be great. We'll all clap and rejoice and you can walk in all that the Lord has for you. For the rest of us, and while this is taking, we're just going to be taking communion as we normally do. We'll, we'll sing some songs and take communion, and you can find your way back to your seat. But as you go back to your seat, wrestle that out. Grab a hold of that reality. As you hold the juice, as you take in the blood, take in the reality that the penalty for your sin has been paid for once and for all. As you take in the cracker, the bread, the body of Christ, Take in the reality that the power of sin is broken in your life. And walk that out in faith. Amen? Amen. So, Lord, again, we thank you. 
for the work that you've done on the cross. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, that we're justified by faith. Lord, not because we earned it, not because we've done anything special, but because, Lord, you are amazing and you paid the price for us and you lived a sinless life and were punished for our sinful life. You took our sin and gave us your righteousness. Lord, it's even hard for us to comprehend, but we grab a hold of it by faith, Lord, and we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that the power of sin has been broken in our life, that we are free now to walk this life out, no longer slaves to our old man, but now slaves to righteousness. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grab hold of those things, that you would help us to take them in, that you would help us to apply them to our lives. Lord, as we come to the table, we do so with great rejoicing, with great humility, with great reverence and honor and gratitude, realizing, Lord, that none of us deserve to come and sup with the king. None of us deserve to come and spend time with the king at his table. But, Lord, we're invited in on Jesus' good merit. And so we can come boldly, and that's what we do. We come to rejoice. And as we come, Lord, those things that we've been wrestling with, those Ciseras, those yeah, Ciseras in our life, Lord, that we've been dealing with the old man, the temptations, whatever they might be, Lord, we reckon them dead by faith, and we lay them at the foot of the cross that we might walk in all that you have for us. So do a work in our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Mm-hmm.